What do you know about wolfies? What is a wolfie? Do you have an interest in maritime history? How about workers' rights? Hello and welcome from Melbourne Library Service. I'm Ivy, the Reader Development and Local History Librarian at Library at the Dock, and I'm here with Ben, the Creative Technology Activator. Hello. As part of the National Trust Heritage Festival, the Local History and Community Heritage Team run a series of walking tours at each of our six branches. North Melbourne, East Melbourne, City, South Bank, Library at the Dock, and soon to open Kathleen Simon Carlton. Since I'm based at the Dock, I ran the walking tour on the walls at Docklands and we invited Jim Beggs to do our tour. Jim is a life member and the last national president of the Australian Waterside Workers' Federation. Jim is the author of Proud to be a Wolfie, where he tells the story of his 62 years on the waterfront. We had so much interest in this walking tour, and before it had even happened, so many people asked us if Jim could do another one. Ben is the Creative Technologies Activator, has a wealth of knowledge and experience in recording and editing, so we thought, why don't we document this walking tour? We hope this is just the first of many recordings of our events that we share with you. We hope you enjoy this recording, and we apologise for any audio issues. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, could we start by saying uh, we pay our respects to the elders of the Coolum Nation for letting us meet on their land. Um, 64 years ago I came down onto the waterfront here uh, as a young 21 year old. I spent 20 years as a wharfie carrying my hook and then another 25 years as the state and national president of the Wharfies Union, the most militant union in the country at that time. Um, and things were much different then. Where we're standing now, this used to be the Union Steamship Company. They uh, handled all the cargoes that went across to New Zealand and some of our interstate cargo. And they were the first of what we called the roll-on, roll-off ships, where the aft end of the ship was lowered down, made a ramp, and of course all the uh, cargo was taken on. Now, when I first came down here, in fact, I was just relating to a friend, I was riding my bike to work on the straight six, which is the six berths that run along the other side of the um, uh, Victoria Dock, as we called it. And I got to the corner over here, and I saw a great mass of splashing in the water. And I looked over, and here was this whole shoal of um, brim jumping out of the water, hundreds of them, being chased up by the Barracuda right up the bay and out the river and cornered them there. You'll never see that again, I don't think. Um, Part of this area is quite historical as far as my union is concerned because uh, just back a little bit from where the library is used to be my union rooms and also the pickup centre, the compound. I'll tell you a little bit about that later on inside perhaps. But um, so it's a bit of hallowed ground for us here and, uh, and of course um, further up at the end of uh, where the river crosses where the entrance to the Victoria Dock is. Uh, is the old um, tower, the observation tower that controlled the ships coming in and out of the port. And on the top of the tower it had a yard arm that went out, and on that yard arm were two big baskets. One was a triangle and the other was a round basket. So ships coming up the river to identify whether they should have gone down the south and north side or whether they should have come into Victoria Dock, one of those baskets would be hauled up. So it was pretty primitive in those days, the uh, direction. Now, of course, at 32 South, we have probably one of the most modern um, uh, towers for dock. Um, in fact, they can tell you every little ship that's up and down the river even. if So if you get in your canoe and start paddling down the river anywhere near docks, they'll know you're in the scene. 
so it's uh, quite a lot of change there too. Um, but let me just say, um, just on the other side over there, uh, used to be probably one of the world's best uh, port emergency centres. We had a first aid set up there with two ambulances, we had a fire brigade, we had everything. In fact, ship owners used to prefer to bring their ships to Melbourne because they knew had this quite high quality service if their ships got into trouble. And um, they were, uh, within three minutes, they could have an ambulance to any part of Victoria Dock. In fact, um, even, you've got to remember, of course, that uh, there's about 12 miles of waterfront uh, docklands and uh, our old mates, we weren't very happy with them in the early days. The dock police had their office just up where that office is there and they butted on to our pickup centre and near our union rooms. Very, very popular with us in the early days, but we learned to live with each other after a while. Um, so this area here was quite a, um, a part of the real history making of the waterfront. I might just say the compound is where we used to come and uh, for our jobs in the morning. We'd get there at 8 o'clock, anything up to 1,500 dwarfies would arrive, and um, knowing full well there's probably about 700 jobs going to be allocated. And of course in the early days the foreman got up on a box, he picked out all his mates, all his pink eyes as we called them, and uh, some blokes who married with family hadn't had a job for a couple of weeks, we get a bit desperate, they'd go and see the foreman in the pub the day before and give him a matchbox with ten shilling note in it. That was the secure job that might have gone for more than a week. So that was the life we had in those days. Uh, it was never a very... Um, a nice place to be. It was a, it was a um, galvanised iron shed and it was a huge shed. It had um, freezing cold in the winter, stinking hot in the summer and uh, I can remember with my gang and another thousand other wharfies waiting for, eight hour, for five hours to get a job. At the end of the time you never had a job and you were sent home with 12 shillings and sixpence. And you might wonder why wharfies were crooked on the boss. So if you go in there and you're there for five hours and then to get your 12 shillings and sixpence you had to go up and show your, your docket to the clerk at the window. And they were members of a clerk's union so they knew us all and uh, hardly did you have to. But if you've forgotten your docket and the supervisor was standing near the not attendance, no 12 and sixpence. So that sort of... Uh, Thing, uh, created that division which separated the wharfies and management and of course industrial relations in those days was non-existent had a problem you stopped the ship and then you sorted it, uh, sort it out later on I might say that um, uh, when I first came down here um, we got a lot of blame for all the troubles on the waterfront now there was over 20 unions here in the Port of Melbourne and any one of them could have been on strike, but the newspapers reported that as the waterside workers on strike. I'll give you one example. We had 12 uh, members of the number two branch of the Hospital Employees Union. Now they worked um, the emergency services and the ambulances and that, and they were having trouble with the government over public hospitals. Their members there weren't uh, happy with their work and uh, they uh, weren't making much progress. 
So they decided, well, we really can affect the country because remember, if you stop the waterfront for four days, you've affected nine out of 10 people's jobs in the country. That's how important the waterfront is. And anyway, they came down and they pulled their 11 blokes off the job. Now we had four and a half thousand wharfies at that time in the port. And um, when we knew we had no first aid, and we had 100 men a week injured severely enough to go off on compensation. So we couldn't let our members work without that support for heart attacks and broken legs. So the port was closed for three days. Not because of us, but because of 11 other blokes. We, we advised them after the dispute that uh, if ever they do that again, we'll, uh, we'll take over their jobs. So this is why we, and of course, uh, I might say dear old Bob Menzies, who was Prime Minister at the time, um, I blame him for a lot of the uh, misconceptions about the wharfies. You know, he used to say that wharfies thought that uh, manual labour was a Mexican bandit and that uh, there'd never be a depression reach the shores of Australia because the wharfies wouldn't be, would be too lazy to unload it. So we had an undeclared war with uh, Robert Menzies, or Pig Iron Bob as we named him after the 1935 a dispute with uh, sending pig iron to Japan. Now, uh, do you want to go and walk along the wharf? What's the idea now? Should we walk along the wharfs a bit? And uh... Now, these were all wooden wharfs we're working on now. And in those days, we had horses working on the wharf because we uh, would land a ton and a half of cargo on a six-wheeler truck. And uh, two wharfies couldn't pull that into the shed on their own because of the uneven planks of wood. So we had the horses to pull them in. And you know, we went on strike once for the wharf here, for the, for the uh, horses in our port. Some of the unscrupulous owners of the horses used to work them double shifts rather than taking them back to there. So the wharfies said, well, we're not gonna work with any horse that's worked more than one shift. Yeah. Now we couldn't talk to the horses who worked a double shift or not. So we used to paint their hoofs. Oh. So in the morning, if they got white hoofs, and the white hoofs were on the job and the afternoon shift, we never worked with them. Yeah. They were sent home. Wasn't one of our most spectacular disputes, but uh, it showed the wharfies care for these lovely horses. And if you weren't careful and left your Gladstone bag open with your lunch in it, <laughs> the old horse would get rid of that for you. You'd blame your mates, but you just had to look at the smile on the horse's face and know where it went. <laughs> where were they stabled? Uh, in the Port Melbourne area, yeah. um, mainly. What were the main roads used to take things into? Sorry? Um, what were the main roads used to take for um, uh, goods into town? The main roads into, well, there was the Pushgray Road that ran across there. Um, Dudley Street came in down the bottom and um, North Wharf Road. So that's the three roads that brought us into this area of the port. Um, I remember being told by the old wharfies that during the war, when MacArthur arrived in the port, uh, he was so disgusted with the uh, what was on the waterfront um, one shower for a thousand wharfies. Yep. A handful of toilets for a hundred wharfies. 
and he was so disgusted in the inefficiency of the management of the port, he said, I'm about to rip down the fence. There used to be a big fence going across the other side of Victoria Dock there uh, because he was finding it difficult to get his war equipment off the ships through the gate and the inefficiency there. Yes, containers and, uh, well, in the latter part, containers, but general cargo would have been stowed all across where these buildings are. Um, yes, the rail line came right through down to uh, uh, one, one Victoria dock and on the north side of the river, all now been pulled up and taken away. So what was here on the old, where the old piers are? These were just um, the wooden piers, wooden wharves that ran out to the edge and that was the edge of the where the end of that, those ones over there were. So the wharf was, and the sheds were here. Oh yes, well, quite wide the wharves. But, um, yeah, they're just now that fella paddling his canoe, he'll be up on the screen with the Port Authority on their tower there. <laughs> you don't do much in the port without they have very high security now. Where's their tower? Where is their tower? Well, the new tower is down at 32 South Wharf. If ever you're going down that way, yep. the south side of the river, you'll find um, this huge tower, very modern. When you're coming over Westgate Bridge, if you're coming across towards yeah. the city, if you look up to your left, you see it? Yeah. Okay. It's and quite, quite a white building with um, the... What's the logo? Is it like a red and white logo up uh, the top? I forget now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's quite obviously a tower. Okay. Yeah. I haven't looked. They've yeah, got a big education centre underneath where they bring schools to give them a talk about the history of the port. But in my day, they had a beautiful launch called the Commissioner, which carried about 70 people. And twice a day, they would take high school students and bring them up and around the port and talk about the ships, what cargo they were unloading, where they're from, and so it was quite a... But that became uh, too expensive in the long run and uh, wiser people, but which uh, was a pity because that was a great education for them to, uh, uh, to understand their port and to know how important it was to the, to the state and to the country. And uh, I might say while we're here, uh, looking across at the Strait Six there, which runs from, and why we call it the Strait Six, a bit of a racing term, and walkers were pretty good <laughs> punters. Um, it started down there at um, on the other side. That's the centre pier. That that bit you see there is centre pier, and uh, on the other side, uh, it goes from 16 Victoria Dock right up to 21, and. Uh, that, that ship's uh, 24. And over here at about um, halfway up there would have been 17, 18 Victoria Dock. And we made history there, international history. Uh, about three ships were tied up there and uh, at lunchtime we all go to the mess room. We had an hour for lunch in those days. And we had a speaker come along and there was about 300 men in the mess room and he was a trade unionist from South Africa and he talked to us about this thing called apartheid. We'd never heard of it before and uh, he told us that we were so interested in it we wanted to find out more so we extended our lunch hour by half an hour. Anyway, when we went back to work 
we were all sacked for um, interfering with stevedoring operations. That wasn't so bad. The next day, the union was fined £500 in the industrial court. They could, there was no hearings, it just you fronted and that was it. The union was so annoyed about it that we uh, were listening to what was obviously a, a major issue for the South African people. Uh, so we pulled the port out, or the union did, and um, so the port stopped for two and a half days. But the thing about it was that it made not only national headlines, but international headlines. Waterside workers in the Port of Melbourne uh, stopped work over apartheid. And uh, Mandela, who was in jail at that time, got news that this unknown union to him on the other side of the world had really raised the flag of his concern for his own country. And that was the first time that international news had picked up that issue. And of course it ran with then we began to put embargoes on certain South African cargoes and that. But when he came to Melbourne in 1992, uh, he met at the town hall. And uh, when he came out onto the balcony to speak to the, um, the people out in Swanson Street, he said, I would like to take uh, to my make particular thanks to the Waterside Workers' Union who were the first to raise the flag for my country. He said, I was in jail and really flagging, wondering where we were going. And this news was a real fillip to me in, in my campaign. So that was nice. And uh, Wolfie sometimes get blamed for political strikes. But there are certain ones that I think uh, we can be a little bit proud of. And uh, some of them not so proud of. <laughs> Uh, we had a blue over um, a cream bun once, not here in this port, but I won't mention the port because it's a pretty good port at the moment. Um, the, uh, the ship in this particular port, it's a, one of our smaller ports in the um, scheme of things, and uh, they um, had to travel out to the berth where they were working. So it was about a quarter of an hour, 20 minute drive to get to the berth. And it's, it's uh, lunchtime. Uh, one of our blokes who had a reputation uh, for going off for a seven course meal, six, six pots and a pie. And uh, he had the reputation of being a bit of a drunk. So he said to the foreman, I, they've run out of cream buns on the pie cart that had come out to service them. I'm going in to get one. The foreman said, if you leave the job, you're sacked. And of course he knew his history and of course he disappeared. Anyway, he's coming back about a quarter of an hour after they've started work and uh, the foreman spots him and sacks him. Well, of course, in those days we all protected our own. So the delegate goes to the foreman and says, look, oh, if you're going to sack him, you'll have to sack a lot of us, thinking that would bluff him out of it. But the foreman and the supervisor were pretty tough men and they said no. So the 70-odd blokes on the job all got the sack and they all went home. And the next day in the port, uh, the chairman had to, had to front the chairman, the Fuhrer we called the chairman in this port. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, um, when the uh, union executive in that small port thought, well, uh, we want to protect these 70 blokes now, we'll pull the whole port out. And they did. So as I, I said earlier, there wasn't any such thing as industrial relations in those days. And of course, both sides were to blame. And of course, uh, over a blooming cream bun, they, uh, they lost a day's work in the port. But that was an extreme.
We've had some very, in fact, in this area here, a lot of our asbestos was unloaded. And that's been the greatest killer of waterside workers. We will never know how many hundreds of them died because of it. When I was president, I had 700 wharfies. Uh, we got them specially x-rayed because we were beginning to realise uh, the danger of this particular cargo, which was unloaded in hessian bags, ripped and torn. You'd be down below in the hatch, and when the, when the uh, tray went up with all the bags on, all this dust would fall down. And in those days, we had open four gallon cans of, uh, for drinking water. So they'd be covered with the scum. You'd sort of brush it aside and put your cup in. And so, uh, and it was in this area that we, um, now those, out of those 700 men that were x-rayed, special x-rays, 500 of us, and I'm included, had an asbestos-related disorder, a thickening of the pleural plaque. I'm one of the lucky ones that's still going, but many of my comrades have since gone. And, uh, but we brought inspectors down after they, uh, we wouldn't handle it unless it was wrapped in impervious seal bags, and then we refused to handle it at all. But when uh, we'd stop handling it, years later, we got our um, union solicitor come down with some uh, testing equipment to see if there was any asbestos still in the sheds. And here it was on the top of all the eaves and round the, the berth years later. So this was one of our areas of uh, disaster in many ways. And I remember uh, one of the employers, because uh, we had a chap had died of it, and he was in hospital, and uh, I went to the um, Patrick's office, which was just down past the, um, um, the library here, and Patrick's had a big, they were the biggest stevedores in the company, in the, in the port. And I said, look, can I get my friend's um, work records for the last 18 months, what ships he worked on? In those days, we were casual. And he worked in that last, um, probably on about 30 different ships. And we identified 12 of those 30 ships would have carried asbestos. So it a clear case of workers' compensation claim for him because we had the ships, the cargo, and all the evidence to take to court. Sadly, his, uh, he died before he got to court, and his widow, who'd been so frustrated by it all, decided not to go to court, oh. and we never had a case. They offered her, I think it was about £12,000 in those days. Anyway, um, another, uh, about a year later, I had a, a similar case. The chap died before the case. But I went to the same company, Patrick's, and said, look, uh, can we get those files out of all those tea chests? <laughs> he said, I'm sorry, Jim, they've all gone disappeared, the boss has taken a lot. So from that point on we had to try and win our cases. We eventually of course now it's uh, automatic anyone that's got asbestosis or methicillioma that's a clear case and it's just a question of identifying what companies he worked for. But it's, a, it's still a, I mean uh, I go to our retired members meeting once a month and every now and again we stand for a minute of silence and it's uh, mostly asbestos that's taken them out. Mm. And Lang Hancock, who's, you know, Gina Reinhardt's his daughter, but he mined a lot of that asbestos. Absolutely, in well, and he said, well, that's the price of progress. You've just got to have, you know, for getting the well, mine. Well, it was a miracle um, product in those days, asbestos sheets and all that. But um, it, um, well, Whitten Noon, of course, uh, 
was the place where many people worked on it. Someone's just raised the name of an old wharfie called Billy Gardner. Um, Billy was the first Labor Lord Mayor of Melbourne, a wharfie, and became the Lord Mayor of Melbourne. A delightful fellow and had a great philosophy. And um, I remember him as a, a young bloke. He always had the rule book in the back of his pocket, the union rule book. And anyone broke those rules knew all about it. But he, he always said, um, you've got to give a fair day's work if you want to get a fair day's pay. And uh, he took that attitude into the uh, town hall and often would invite myself and other union officials to come up and uh, speak to the employers, where he said, a lot of you people think there's an iron curtain that drops down there at Spencer Street, and what goes on behind that iron curtain on the wharf, you don't know about. He said, but the work that goes on behind that iron curtain in the port is why Victoria is a great state. Because he said, a great state represents a great port. And he said, um, we've got to open our minds. And uh, it was great for union people like me to sit down with some of our top employers and, and, and share our ideas. And uh, in fact, in my latter years, when I came on the waterfront in 51, uh, we represented only 2% of the national workforce, uh, as I say, 6,500 wharfies. Um, we had 600 coalies in those days who, who bunkered the coal ships. But of course, as the oil burners came in, the coalies disappeared. But, um, and might I say, have a guess how many are down here now, doing hundreds of thousands of tonnes more than us. 200. And given uh, in the next few years the automated ships that are coming in and now operating out of other ports, they'll have a ship, uh, a captain and a couple of chief officers, a few engineers, but the whole ship will be automated. So no one will be needed to take the container off the ship. No one will be needed on the wharf to, um, because it'll be set in a, in a pattern where it'll be uh, transported around. And um, so no wharf will be, it'll just be someone up in Collins Street on a computer unloading our ships or maybe in Hong Kong if we're not careful but uh, this is the future of the the waterfront and one can't stand in that way but when I came down here uh, we only represented two percent of the national workforce but uh, we represented nearly 30 percent of the national strikes <laughs> and uh, unfortunately we uh, uh, I always blame a poor worker will often, in many cases, reflect the poor boss. So we had poor bosses and uh, we didn't have the best of union officials in those early days. I always said they were too political and... Uh, anyway, um, when people like myself began to um, become officials in the port and a more responsible sort of a leadership, we began then to talk with the bosses. Uh, we built relationships with our port users uh, the farmers hated the wharfies and the wharfers hated the farmers. I'll never forget the day I went up to Shepparton to talk to their executive of the Northern Fruit Growers. And I said, uh, uh, I understand that all the problems on the waterfront you believe belong to my members. Now, if that is so, I want you to identify them so we can really resolve them. Nine out of their ten problems had nothing to do with my union. Anyway, they showed us their farms, we had lunch, and then at the end of the day, um, the most antagonistic farmer of them all came up to me and said, I never thought I'd see the day where I'd shake the hand of a wharfie. And I said, well, this is just the beginning. 
when your season is finished, I want you to bring your executive down and uh, we'll give you lunch in the mess room of the wharfies, the blokes who handle your cargo. And then we'll take you up to management and you can see the relationship we've built with them and the Port Authority. Now, uh, I was another 20 years in my job and over that 20 years the relationship between the farmers and ourselves developed to such an extent that the ACTU got involved and uh, they wanted to uh, create a better atmosphere between them. And as a matter of fact, the uh, increase in the fruit through the port here from Shepparton doubled in the next 12 months. And in fact, it was quite remarkable because they could sell their pears and their apples for $40 a carton here in Melbourne. And that's all they were gonna get for them if they sent them overseas. And they had to take the risk of um, the ship's refrigerators breaking down and they only got paid if they arrived overseas in, in first class order. But they said, because of the new relationship we've got with your union, we're going to increase our exports. And that went on for many years. Sadly, when I retired in 1992, I might say that the couple of the blokes that took my job and my secretary's job uh, weren't worth a cracker. <laughs> and it wasn't long before the Wharfies lost faith in their union and the Patrick's dispute developed. And uh, it's history now. We won the dispute, but you go and talk to Wharfies today, 10 years later, and there's still that terrible feeling in fact, in 1928, we had a strike uh, where we were locked out. And for 12 months, Wharfies starved and their families starved. In fact, their kids that went to school in Port and South Melbourne, the teachers knew who they were and said to all the other kids who brought their lunch, can we share it with these kids of heaven? And that created a tremendous amount of bitterness because they brought scabs onto the wharf. And just over here in the compound where we're, the, the library is, they used to house the scabs there and the police used to protect them and they had to take them off in trucks to get them down to the various jobs and they'd be stoned and everything and um, so it created this terrible ill will. Now I came down on the wharf and this was uh, a year before I was born, 1928. When I came down to the wharf that hatred was still there because the compound was divided by a barbed wire fence. On one side were the scabs, on the other side was our union. and. Uh, there were still about 300 of the scabs left and the words that were shared we would never work on the same ship as a scab that a scab had worked and then eventually we worked the same ship but different shifts wouldn't be on the same job eventually most of them died off and there was a handful of them left and we decided to absorb them into the union and that was a terrible stop work meeting i'll never forget it up at the old festival hall there the west melbourne boxing stadium as it was then and uh all these old blokes that had gone through those struggles, I hadn't, uh, but I could understand their, their bitterness. And uh, out of the 3,000 wharfies that there at the stop work meeting, the vote got up by 35 votes. It was the right decision because you can't carry two separate unions and that hatred and division going on. But that was resolved, and, uh, but that was part of uh, the Patrick's dispute. Um, I think we're, uh, and I don't want to be political, but I, I think we're Peter Reith, uh, not Peter Reith, um, Corrigan made his mistake. Instead of trying to solve it industrially, as we always did in my day, he went to Peter Reith and the politics, and of course we know that Peter Reith was only interested in getting reuni reunions, and uh, that was the issue. It wasn't a question of industrial issues.
even though they were industrial issues there. But that was resolved and uh, I'm afraid um, it still leaves a, a sour taste in the men that were here in those days. And, and one of the tragedies in my day, I had uh, 24 um, federal councils on the National Council of my union. And uh, in 1992, when I retired, um, 17 of those 24 retired at the same time. So we lost all the old experienced men in their uh, various ports, which brought in younger blokes, including the two that came in here who weren't, as I say, worth a cracker and uh, developed the state where Patrick's was, uh, his uh, container rates were going down from 25 containers an hour, which was what it was like when we uh, uh, left the waterfront to 17. And I might say, I mentioned that figure of nearly 30% of the industrial strikes were my union's responsibility. When I retired in 92, it was less than 0.5% of industrial disputes. The waterfront was uh, quite a different place than when I started and when I left. Where did the Wharfies mostly live? Port Melbourne or West Melbourne? Or? Um, I would say probably 50% of our members lived in Port or South Melbourne or North Melbourne. In fact, uh, nearly half our, well over half our membership uh, in the early 50s were born overseas, migrants. In fact, uh, at one stage, nearly half our membership were Maltese, and I'm glad to see Freddie Camilleri here today, an old working mate of mine who, uh, I always reckon he was very unlucky. He, was, he could have been the first Maltese ever to hold a full-time job as a union official in Australia. We made a mistake with our out of vote card, didn't we, Fred? <laughs> yeah. Now, I think that's it there. If you look back, you'll see that uh, bit of a tower there with the with the blue windows. Blue windows. Yep. That was the old dockhead. The old yard arm's gone now, but uh, no lift up to the top, just to walk up, and uh, the new one, of course, it's uh, taller and much more modern. Did they walk from the compound around to the, the, the different berths? In the early days they had, well we are mostly on push bikes in those days, but um, then we got a, a little red bus that serviced the docks. And uh, when you go past uh, the corner of Flinders Street and Spencer Street, there's an historical wall there called the Whaling Wall. It's heritage now, listed, and um, on the corner of Spencer and Flinders Street in my day, you had the Sir Charles Hotham, of course, still there, the Bloodhouse as we called it. Opposite that was the Victoria Fish Market under the bridge there, the big fountain. On the other side, which is now the World Trade Centre, uh, that was um, the Seaman's Home. And then on the other side is this long red brick wall that uh, the rail yards were behind. 
and it was so called by the, the Whaling War because that's where the wharfies we'd all used to meet there. And um, before my time, they had their pickups there actually. But you'd wait to get the red bus to take you around to a different job or whatever. And we'd complain about the, the foreman and the supervisors. Uh, whiplash and he sacked the gang the other day, the scoundrel, and uh, so-and-so did this. You'd talk about the bosses that you, you didn't like and you'd complain even about the umpire who robbed your team the day before. So it became a place uh, of complaint and uh, it eventually got the name the Wailing Wall. So it's now heritage listed and it won't be uh, pulled down, thank goodness. that adjoins the um, the Grand Hotel Apartments, yeah. which used yes, to be the, right. the Railway Workers yeah. Building. Okay. Yeah, under the viaduct, and that's yep. the one. It's right opposite the, uh, what is the World Trade Centre now. Yep. Is this the Railway Administration? Yes. Workers. Ah, yes, actually. Thank you, you're right. And the Seaman's Home that you refer to, is that the, um, the Seafarer's Mission? No, the Seafarer's Mission uh, is down further. Yep. Along Flinders Street Extension. The painters, someone asked me about the painters and dockers. Yes, they have. Um, when I came down on the waterfront, my 42 years on the wharf, I might say there was 42 murders in the Port of Melbourne. Um, I think mainly, if not all, uh, painters and dockers. I suppose the blessing was they caught and killed their own. But they, um, they started 100 years ago, the painters and dockers, and they were started by sea captains and um, chief officers, respected men in the society, who didn't want to go to sea anymore and leave their families, but wanted to um, keep involved with the industry. And the, the work they do, the, the painters and doctors, the work they did was absolutely terrible. Uh, all the rubbish that was accumulated at the bottom of the hatch when uh, wharfies like us had finished, they had to clean that out and of course scrape the barnacles and things off the ships. So no one wanted that work. And during the uh, Second World War, Watch out. Watch out. during the, during the <laughs> Second World War, um, no one would go down there and get a job because they could walk in and out, all the young blokes had gone overseas. And as a result, uh, the shipwrights were um, short of dockers. So they, one of their smart Alex got a uh, a note and went up to Pentridge on release days oh, yes. and we'd give these prisoners a little card saying if you can't get a job you'll find one down on the docks for you. Well a few of them came down, absolutely perfect for them, a protected industry during the war, shift work, they could do all their and eventually they uh, took over that what was a very respectable union and of course the, uh, the dock wars that took place over the leadership battles we always said it's a pretty uh, short term to become a secretary of the painters and dockers because three of them got bumped off and um, but sadly uh, and then in the end um, uh, when we took these 23 different unions uh, we decided we would form an industry union rather than have all these different little unions which were causing enough havoc without uh, 
we absorbed them and the painters and dockers came in and uh, they disappeared in that sense and of course uh, so they're part the of the Maritime Union now. When, when did the painters and dockers finish up? Um, 1992, we finally uh, absorbed them all. It's still quite recent, isn't it? Yeah, not that long ago. In fact, um, uh, my secretary at the time, pretty rough and tough little fella, uh, was told they've got 300 painters and dockers in the Port of Melbourne who want to become join our union. And he said, 300? He said, uh, I think there might be 13. <laughs> he, uh, and you might remember the bottom of the harbour when oh, Malcolm Fraser. Yeah. That started with the painters and dockers, with Louis Wright being shown on television picking up 30 wage packets, but he only had 10 blokes on the job. And uh, we knew how many they had, and it was 13 that were registered and working. And uh, so our general secretary rang us up one day. He said, oh, don't upset these blokes, Jim. Uh, uh, and I said, oh, they'll, they'll blow us to pieces, you know. We've got to take some of them in. And my secretary was as tough as they were. He said, no, they're getting 13 in, and that's it. Uh, in the end, we only took 13 in, and there wasn't any repercussions either. But, uh, yes, they were um, a colourful group. Uh, Billy the Texan, the longest-serving prisoner in, uh, in our Pentridge jail, he was um, sentenced because of the murder of Pat Shannon, the secretary there in the pub. Uh, I suppose it's ironical that uh, Billy the Texan uh, didn't actually shoot Shannon. It was two other blokes he'd paid to. But um, all the other ones he'd done, uh, I think he got caught up for with that one. In fact, you know, when Billy came out of jail, um, I, I worked um, for 30 years in prisons as a volunteer working with developing industries in our prisons. And I met Billy quite often. And when he came out, he uh, joined with another fellow and their, um, their business was conciliation. <laughs> Mediation and conciliation. So I, I think Billy might have been, uh, I don't know where he fitted into the mediation or conciliation, but that was their firm. Yeah. Last chance. <laughs> now this is pretty uninteresting along here. I don't know whether you want to go further around or... It's up to you. Yeah, why don't we go back, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting a bit hungry too, yeah. <laughs> they've done to the place. Sorry? What do you think about what they've done to the place now? Uh, well, as I say, when I first came here, we had 100 births in the Port of Melbourne. Today there's about 25 working births. Uh, obviously, uh, in my day, a big ship was 4,000 tonne of cargo. Um, and we take um, 100 men, um, two weeks to unload and load that ship. Now these big 60, 70, 80,000 tonne ships that are coming into our port, they'd have a complement of about 12 or 15 wharfies and they discharge and load that ship in 32 hours. And, uh, but it's nice to see uh, the port develop like this. I just hope that they can build a heart into this city of uh, Docklands. Um, and introduce some community works and uh, the library is a great start 
because uh, I don't know, I think there's about 6,000 people live now in, in Docklands. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of people and it's a, a community that needs to be nurtured. Can you recall when containers first started to come into the industry? Yes, uh, containers started to come into the Port of Melbourne. Um, well, where that ship is over there, 24 Victoria Dock, the berth next to it, 23 Victoria Dock, was the first container uh, ship in the world. It ran from Fremantle to Melbourne. Uh, it was called, um, the, uh, I'm just trying to think of the name, a Canimbla, no, not the Canimbla, anyway, Karinga, that was what it was. Now, it used to discharge 3,000 um, uh, tonne of uh, cargo in containers, and they had uh, 11 men work it, and I was working on a ship where that one is now, 24 dot. And we both started the same day. Their ship had tied up and they started eight in the morning. Our ship tied up. We had 100 men on the day shift and 50 men on the twilight. We had exactly the same amount of cargo to handle. They were gone in two days and we were there for two weeks. So, but I think uh, when the real container ships started to come in was in the early 1970s. Um, our General Secretary went overseas and saw containerization in America. And he came back in those days, in 1961, um, we were casually employed. And it wasn't until 1968 that we became permanently employed with a guaranteed weekly wage. And that was when the containers started to come in. And of course, uh, it was a thing that saved our members because uh, as the containers came in, of course, the hours of work dropped. And uh, as our General Secretary said, if we hadn't adopted the permanency, we'd have all been sharing the poverty. Yeah. And, so uh, that's a positive thing, the containers? Sorry? Was it positive, the containers? Oh, look. Guaranteed. Yes, you couldn't. Well, we had a guaranteed uh, weekly. Well, I think in 1968, it was $50.50 50 uh, a week. There was less workers though, it's a lot less... Um, oh now, yes, well I say we've only got 200 left in the Port of Melbourne out of 6,500. But in the 70s there were less workers? Uh, yes, gradually in the... In, well, 68, 70 onwards was the... Um, we had a ship came in here, it was a lash, what we called a lash ship. And the containers on the ship were 500 tonne. And the ship used to pull in a station pier and uh, these big 500 tonne barges would be unloaded and then they'd be floated, floated around here to Victoria Dock. And that ship, the ship owners are only interested in making money and they can only make money while their ship's moving. While their ship's tied up, they're not making money, they're losing money. And uh, they're paying for a crew that can't do any work or maintain the ship. And uh, these last ships were a great success because the ship would only be there for probably about four hours and it could unload about 5,000 tonne of cargo in that time and it'd go off to the next port. In the meantime, these big barges would be deposited here, they'd be unloaded and reloaded and when the ship came back, he just put the big barges back on again. But for some reason that never took off and uh, the traditional now, of course, is the big 20 and uh, 40 tonne containers.
start your hook. Could you tell us more about the hook? The hook, uh, that was our, your standard bit of equipment. Um, because most of the cargoes we handled were uh, wheat and wool and of course even the um, wooden cartons and that, you used this hook. It was just a wooden handle with a bent steel, sharpened steel hook on the end of it. And uh, that used to uh, help you lift uh, whatever you had to lift. Like a, like a big long steel finger? Yeah, it wasn't a, about um, maybe a foot long yeah. wooden handle and that uh, very helpful. Were people very attached to their own oh. particular hook? Well, uh, I shouldn't say there was some stealing going on with hooks, but you wouldn't dare to leave. If you had a McDonald's hook and that was the real top class, uh, hook in the port, and I think you paid about a pound for that. You had to supply your own? Oh yeah, supplied your own. And um, so you treasured that hook and uh, you all knew your own, you put a little mark on it. Were there any weight restrictions back then, like 20 kilo, 40 kilo? Um, that one man to lift? No, uh, in those days, um, well, loading loading wheat, for instance, if you didn't load, if your gang didn't load 140 tonne of wheat in an eight-hour shift, you got sacked for what was called insufficient tonnage. And that meant that, uh, as a warfare, I would carry, um, and bear in mind, they were 90 kilo bags of wheat, 182 pound, and if um, if I uh, carried that for that eight hours, that was 24 tonne I carried on my back in the eight hours as an individual, and I would carry it from here to the peppercorn tree there, not on a level floor like this, but on uneven bags already pre-laid, and then you had to stow it up and uh, put it. So um, it was our union actually that took the um, to the ILO, the question of what should be a maximum amount, and I think it's 56 kilos now, or something that men can lift, and I don't know what it is for women, but it's, but those those days, and uh, and of course the bales of uh, wool, 350 pound, and you had to stow them up above your head, five men, to lift it up and push it in between the combings at the end of the job, and, um, and the uh, bales of, um, uh, raw hides, they were 750 pound. And I always, we had a group down on the wharf called the Veterans, and they were all blokes well into their 70s. And we have no age group uh, in those days. And uh, I'd watch them receive, they were all receivers, they would receive the cargo into the shed for us to load. And to watch them take these 750 pound bales off the truck. And they just put their shoulder at the edge just as about to tip over because they used to be stood up on their end. They just had that knack to do it. But they so were... Uh, were people, you know, broken through carrying uh, such heavy weights? We had a doctor did a report. He was asked to do a report on the malingras in the port of Sydney. And his report was frightening. He said, I have never, in, I have never seen a group of men... Um, aged prematurely because of the work that they'd done and um, uh, with hernias and all sorts of back injuries, back was the worst injuries 
um, because of uh, the nature of the job. And, uh, and of course, uh, before my time, they uh, would live on the ship. If the ship was going to go two days, you stay there till it was finished. And uh, we had an old fellow, when people ask me about the waterfront and why there's always been a lot of industrial unrest, uh, I tell them the story of Huey Sykes. Uh, Huey was 85 when he, uh, he died, still working on the waterfront, riding his push bike to work, and um, he was coming across in a little ferry, it's just a rowboat that used to bring them across um, just down from Queen Street Bridge from the south side to the north side. And uh, when Huey was getting out of the boat with his bicycle, he fell in the drink. And they pulled him out, still hanging onto his bike. <laughs> he rode off to work and he wouldn't go home and get changed and he got pneumonia and that finally killed him. But when we investigated Huey's, he was a marvellous fellow. I remember working with him one day on a, on a, a bag job. And you know, 182 pound bag is pretty heavy and you want to get off your back. And we were making a, what we call a, a, a brow and a straight wall across the middle of the hatch. Half the hatch was going to be nothing in it, in this port. The other half was going to be full of wheat. And uh, if you didn't put that brow in straight and bind it back like a brick day, like day does with his bricks, that could, at sea, get a bit of rough sea and fall over and possibly put the lives of seamen at risk. So I dropped my bag down and thought that was all right, but Huey was behind me. He was only about five foot four inches tall, had this bag on his shoulder, grabbed me by the arm as I walked past. He said, son, that bag not straight. And down at... Um, uh, I remember working him down there at Williamstown on the uh, wheat boats and over smoke hour lunchtime old Huey had his bag needle sewing up the b broken bags to stop it bleeding onto the wharf. He loved his job but when he died, nothing. 57 years he worked in the Port of Melbourne and got no pension, no super, no sick leave, nothing. And um, you know, that's what uh, made us sort of feel that uh, we wanted to do a bit better than poor old Huey's family did. He left, would you believe, 37 family on the waterfront. Brothers and nephews and grandchildren. And yeah. um, in fact, his uh, granddaughter, or no, his great-great-granddaughter is now a member of parliament. And she was the first young lady to become uh, a full-time official of the Tradeshall Council. So I was in the, they used to call him the uncrowned mayor of Port Melbourne because he'd come home. You, on a Sunday, if he wasn't working, he'd be riding his bike around the port, particularly on the south side, and he lived in port. And instead of having his leather apron on, he had a straw-decker hat. That was the Sunday outing. But he often come home with a stranger, and uh, his attitude was, there's always room for one more. But, uh, so, you know, that's how they were treated in those days, and uh, there was no limit to uh, what you carried. What year did he die? Hmm? What year did he die? Uh, oh, let me think, it would be about, uh, might have been the uh, early 70s or late 60s, I think, yeah. Right, okay, so very different. Yes, oh yes. Containers come in? Containers start to come in in around about 68, 69, and then by the 70s they were well and truly uh, taking over the general cargo ships. They're a good invention, though. Oh, look, um, uh, who wants to be dragging, you know, all this stuff around? All oh, right. Were there songs or ways to entertain when you were um, carrying the cargo? Anyone? Songs or entertainment. 
Did you have to sing along? Oh, sing alongs? No, we were in my day we were too busy. But we used to have some jokers, of course, in your gang. You always had one, and we always reckon. Uh, well, we called him the London Fog because we reckon he never lifted. And uh, he'd sit up on a case and he'd start to uh, tell you jokes. And of course, you're always happy to listen to a good joke. That was his role. That was his role. <laughs> we all had nicknames on the waterfront. Um, we had a bloke called Hydraulic Jack. And he'd lift anything if you weren't careful. And uh, we had the legal profession down on the waterfront. We had a bloke called the judge because we reckon he got to work at 7.30 in the morning and sat on a case all day. <laughs> and our union officials came in for a fair share of their, uh, uh, we had a bloke called uh, the mirror. And every time he came down on the job and you'd ask him a question, he'd say, I'll look into it. <laughs> so, and then of course there was Nickaway Ned. Nickaway Ned had a great philosophy he, he vowed he'd never be late twice in the one day. So if he got to la work late, he'd leave early. <laughs> and your nickname? <laughs> my nickname was Daylight Savings. And I got that when I began to change my attitude to, uh, to life completely. Found a faith and I wanted to do something in the port. And I, uh, like most wharfies, uh, we uh, were pilferers on the waterfront and I had a clock I'd stolen and I decided to take it back. I did it quietly but uh, when I got elected president I was asked to speak at the um, years later at the uh, Scots Church and I gave my testimony about and one of the things I said was returning this clock. The next morning I got into work at 7.30 and uh, Big Reggie Mack the bomber he fought, uh, he was a heavyweight title fighter and in Australia and he uh, he said oh Jim he said you're no longer called the Reverend anymore he said you called daylight savings because you put the clock back <laughs> <laughs> and they still refer to that at stop at our life members dinners you know we have six and a half six six hundred and fifty old members we uh, we go to the um, Mooney Valley race course third week uh, third Wednesday in November and we put on a life members dinner for them. It's a three course silver service dinner, coffee and chockies at the end and a beautiful occasion. And um, we've been doing that for years now. In fact, there's more life members than there are actual, actual members now. But we set up a fund many years ago and that sustains us. I do. I speak at. Uh, I've written a book. I'm like, yes. Yeah, and I, I, I do talk at uh, Rotaries and Probus and U3As and all sorts of places. So, silly question, how old are you now? 85 and a half. Bloody hell. Just a boy. <laughs> Just Grandma's a boy. 95 today. <laughs> <laughs> You're a bit more agile than her, though. Uh, I don't know. At times I feel a bit. Uh, for all the physical problems that the job gave, the physicality of it would have also been good. Sorry? The physicality of the work would have also been good. Oh, yes. Well, you know, as I said earlier about the...
Corfe that it used to have a seven course meal, six pots and a pie. And our fellas did like to drink, but one of the things I think that uh, kept us going was that uh, the work was hard, very hard. And uh, where do we go in here or down here? Yeah, I think we'll stop here and then right. go in for some morning lunch. What were you going to say about your six pots and uh, pie mats? Well, uh, most of the wolfies, as I say, they like a drink, and uh, but the physical work, you know, it sweated them out, and uh, it uh, that sort of I think saved their uh, many of them. Of course, we lost through uh, we called it the shipping disease, alcoholism, and we set up a um, when I got into office, we set up a um, a clinic. And of course, it was difficult at first to to get the fellows to come in, and but we had a doctor who worked. We had a oh, but that's right. Just further over here too was a medical centre, very good medical centre. Two doctors and a nurse, and um, this doctor came to us one day. He said, "Oh, look, Jim, I'm I'm going to have to leave." He said, "I can't. Uh, I've got a wife and kids, and I can't afford to receive what I'm getting here." And I'm going to go into private practice with a partner. And uh, but he said I'd like to uh, come back once a fortnight and catch up with some of the fellows I've been involved with. Now it turns out he'd been an alcoholic himself. Lost his business once and got back, and nearly lost his family. But he got it back together through Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, look, uh, three out of the five blokes I treat for a broken finger, they've got an underlying problem of drink. And he said I've got to know a lot of them, and I just want to help them. So we set up then uh, uh, virtually uh, a doctor's office in our union rooms. He came back every fortnight. We would go and get the blokes who needed to be brought in. And he literally saved the lives of hundreds of our members during that time. And um, uh, he, he was, well, as I say, we got the employers on, on board because uh, they were concerned and they were just as much to blame because our blokes would cover up the alcoholic. He'd get to work, couldn't work, and they'd sit over in the corner and they'd do his job. No good for him. And we finally got our members on side and uh, uh, to say when a bloke was hit the bottle again and they wouldn't let us know and we'd go and get him and bring him into the union rooms. And um, in some cases, um, uh, well, I would say most of them in my early days lost their jobs because of the drink. They got into trouble. They wouldn't turn up on Monday mornings. They would get in trouble on the job. And uh, In fact, we had one bloke, I'll tell you a story. Uh, Snails was his name. And the reason he got called Snails, they reckon he was walk, wheeling his barrow of, um, with a bale of wool on it down the wharf. He stopped with his mate here and he walked over and he stamped on this snail. And his mate said, what did you do that for? Oh, he said, I couldn't bear it. He said, that's the third time he's passed me today. <laughs> but Snails was an alcoholic, and he was working in a job, uh, and his job was very uh, sedentary. He just looked after the... He was a, a keeper of the clothes and bags of Wharfies. And he had no licence, and uh, anyway, the blokes must have said to him, and they, oh, why don't you go up the, and get a couple of slabs for us, you see? So he sneaks the company bus drives up, gets the two slabs, comes back into the depot and he turns the bus over on the medium strip. And uh, if it hadn't been a supervisor, he'd have ripped himself to pieces trying to get out with the wheels spinning on him. Anyway, it was all on video. His job was gone. So for the first time we got shackles in and uh, the boss sacked him and we said, well, look uh, quietly to the boss, 
if we get him in our program, would you give him another chance if he makes a go of it? So we went out to Shackles and she said, um, we want you to go on the program. No, no, oh, well, you might as well go and collect your money now and go. But he said, they're prepared to give you a go if you put six weeks into the program. He did and uh, made good. Uh, we had some blokes went through the program about 15 times, but uh, we were still trying. And that was one of the best. Um, in fact, many of the unions used to send their people to us to, to help them uh, on their way. Right. Well, uh, can I just say one thing before we end? And uh, we were talking there, were we? Just, um, I wrote a book a few years ago. It took me six years to write it. And uh, I wrote it for a number of reasons. But one was that no union had ever received more adverse and unfair publicity than my union. We were criticised for everything. And I thought, this is wrong. And uh, I used to write antidotes for the kids, you know, and the grandkids. And, and then they said, put it in a book. Uh, so I started. And um, I wrote the book to answer a lot of those misconceptions because I couldn't have wished to work with the more generous, more humorous, uh, salt of the earth people. Sure, like every other industry, we had our odd bods. In fact, I remember, um, um, I can't think of his name, the bloke that does the uh, John Fane program, 30, uh, yeah, before John, um, about 30 years ago, and he used to ring me up if there was a problem, you see. He never rang me up if something had good happened, but, and always he would start his uh, question Oh, Jim, a friend of mine, he said he got his container unloaded the other day and half the cargo was gone. So you had to start off by defending yourself with this. And I said to him one day, um, we were in those days controlled by the government, the Australian Stevedoring Industry Authority, and they employed us and they sacked us. And incidentally, you couldn't get a job on the wharf if you had a, a criminal record. Um, that didn't go for the painters and knockers, of course. And so I said to him... Uh, well, it's interesting, I said, I've just read the, um, the annual report of the Australian and Stevedoring Industry Authority where it um, puts every item that happened on the wharf, including how many wharfies lost their job for filtering. And I said, one. And we had 11,000 wharfies at that time. So I said, one in 11,000 is not too bad, is it? How would your industry measure up alongside that? But um, so that was one of the reasons I wanted to write it. And the other was for the younger generation. I spoke to the 650 retired members, but there's about 100 or so young blokes bring them along to the dinner. And I, I said to the young blokes there, if you really want to know where you're going, you really need to know where you've come from. And that the trades union movement was started by people of principle, of character, of uh, hope and, uh, and faith. I said they were those sort of people. And I said, if you want to take our movement forward, we're not, we're agents for change. That's what the, water, what the union movement is, agents for change. Not agents for resistance, but agents for change. And if you want to take the union along that course, and you follow that course, you could well be the new generation of, uh, of workers that um, take us into this new, new age where the work and the wealth of the world is available for all and the exploitation of none. And I got a ring on the phone from a bloke whose son, uh, grandson, uh, works for the um, 
CFMEU and he's a very able young delegate, going to become a union official. And he said, I've given him your book to read, Jim, to see how you worked it out on the waterfront in those latter years to bring about harmony and, uh, and a consensus, uh, which is what we do. I could ring the boss up any day and say, look, I'd like to come down and talk to our members during the lunch break. He said, take as long as you like, Jim, because he knew my executive at that time were down to solve a problem and not to create one. And we built that relationship. Sadly, as I say, um, when we all retired and the wrong groups got in, they went back to the old days. But uh, So that's what I wrote the book about, and it's got the humour and the, and the human stories of, of people who... Uh, one story about an alcoholic, he used to go over to Fiji or Solomon Islands every year with his wife. And uh, we called him Bootnose because he's, I think, probably coarse through his drinking. But anyway, he had a rather large one. And he used to go over there, and he was there when a cyclone went through and destroyed the village. And he said, I was so impressed. He came to me one day and said, I was so impressed uh, to see these villages. And they, they gave us what they could. They had nothing but gave it. And he said, I came home, he said, determined, I'm going to go back every year and I'm going to take back a bag full of money. And he gave up his grog, saved him a few thousand bucks a year, but he got his family and friends. And every year he would go back with quite a few thousand dollars to that little island. And, uh, and dear old Jackie Carter, uh, he's gone now, Jack, but, um, and he was up to his 80s, still working the wharf. But he causes more trouble than was worth. And I always used to hate it when, uh, you might remember when they started opening the pubs at 6.30 in the, in the morning, the dawn service, our blokes called it. And whenever we had a, whenever we had a, had a, uh, a stop work meeting at the West Melbourne, uh, Jack had been to the dawn service and he'd come there well tanked up. And he used to give me a terrible time as chairman. Let's all go home, we don't want to stay back and work home. And uh, anyway, Jack's problem was drink. One day he came into my office with his wife. And she said, look, I just come in because we got Jack on our program. She said, I just want to thank you, he said, for what the union's done for Jack. She said, we've just come back from Queensland. We've been married 45 years and it's the first holiday we've ever had because we've never had enough money to go because Jack spent it all. And that went on and uh, he died just last year at the age of 85 and uh, for 20 years he never had a drink. So there's some great... Anyway, I put these stories in the book if you're interested.